Greetings, and welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park. In our last episode, I shared the history of trapping and poaching in the park during the first 50 or so years of its existence. In this episode, I'm going to share some of the many stories that poachers and park rangers have recounted, including both adventures and lifestyles in the bush. What's also fun about this episode is that many of the stories are quite humorous and will be great for retelling around a campfire. As with our last episode, I want to once again give a huge shout out to my friend and colleague, Roderick Mackay, from whose book, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, I have referenced extensively. The amount of research he's done over the last 40 years about both the history and the archaeology of Algonquin is incredible. Published by and available through the Friends of Algonquin Park, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other is a must-have reference book for anyone with a passion for Algonquin Park. I've also included contributions from many other well-known trapping and poaching personalities, including Ralph Weiss, Joe Lavalle, Emmett Chartrand, Matt Lavalle, Stuart Eady, Jack Gervais, and Bill Mooney, amongst many others. As mentioned in episode 5, over the years there evolved two seasons of poaching in Algonquin, that which was done in winter and that which was done in the spring and fall. Spring and fall trapping and tracking was much more complicated and required much keener work efforts on the part of both poacher and pursuer. But even at the best of times, a poacher's life was difficult, what with no camp, just a tarp and sleeping on the ground in a single blanket in rain or snow, and also with very little to eat. As Emmett Chartramb, who both poached and was a member of the Department of Lands and Forest staff at various points in his life shared. The dirtier the weather, the colder the temperature, the tougher the terrain, the more it rained or snowed, that was the best time, place, and conditions to travel. But even with that, as Emmett Chartrand shared, when you walked your way through the 150 miles of heavy forest, stony crags, and rocky canyons, Creeks and rivers, rapids and waterfall, marshes and swamps, beaver ponds and loon shit potholes, you had to travel undetected in total silence. You had to be careful never to make a sound, never snap a twig or branch, never make a splash, never stop the flow of water when crossing a beaver dam. The park rangers were not only tuned into hearing sounds that shouldn't be there, but they'd also hear when a sound wasn't there that should be. You had to be careful never to walk out in the open. You even had to be careful the light of the sun never flashed off your axe head or your knife blade. When you walked, you never stepped on grasses or mosses because they could leave a footprint. You would step from rock to rock or walk along a fallen log or even walk in the water making sure you left neither a footprint on the creek bottom or a wet boot track on a rock. You had to sneak through the bush as silently as the shadow of a ghost wolf walking on dew-moistened moss on a foggy morning in a marsh. If you had a partner with you, you'd never, ever call out to one another. You'd call out using a wolf howl, and your partner would answer with the hoot of a great horned owl. You never, ever left garbage or even a sign that you had camped and spent a night unless it was deliberately done to throw the rangers off your track. You never slept near a lake, a beaver pond, or a creek, always at least a half a mile away. That's because along the creeks and lakes, that's generally where the rangers went. When you traveled the park, you removed everything from your pockets and your pack that could identify you. You even made sure there were no labels on your clothes or your pack. If there was no way they could identify you, there was no way they could prove who it belonged to. 
You always kept your nose and mouth covered so even the steam from your breath wouldn't give you away. You really had to know what you were doing and where you were doing it and where you were going and be ready to jump at any given second to change direction at every single step. Now, I'm not sure that any of us in this day and age have any insight into how difficult it really is to travel undetected in the bush. Probably the closest to a parallel experience might be that which happened during a Canadian reality TV show called Man Tracker that was popular from 2006 to 2012. In the series, in some remote part of Canada, two people were given a head start to reach a predetermined finish line that was anywhere from 70 to 60 kilometers away. An expert tracker who relied on his tracking skills to follow and hopefully capture the two prey before they reached the finish line pursued them. Most of the time, the prey was not successful in eluding capture. When asked if poaching for an Algonquin Park was worth risking a fine, Joe Lavalli said, Oh boy, you bet. Going there on one trip, you'd come out with five or six fishers when a good fisher was worth $220. Hell, it was no trouble. There was a lot of fisher in the park, and Martin was 60 or 70 bucks. Emmett Chartrand emphasized, on the other hand, that although he wasn't proud of his role, he had a wife and four of his own children to feed as well as four other orphans. Doing so was impossible on the going rate then of a dollar a day in lumber camps, as he shared in 1995. When there's only a small amount of flour in the bottom of the bag at home, he wasn't going to sit in the house. Legally trapped beaver could be carried home to be skinned, stretched, and dried, but a poacher had to skin the animal before packing it out. As Emmett Chartrand shared, Whatever you did shoot, you tied together and sunk them in the water. You only kept out one at a time to skin. If you kept beaver out overnight, you could soon have wolves or a spring bear ready to take them from you, and if hungry enough, they'd kill you for the beaver. Your night was then spent huddled by a small, smokeless fire, skinning beaver all night. But even if skinned correctly, each bush-skinned beaver weighed about 10 pounds. As Emmett said, You were loaded with fur going in and loaded with furs coming back out. So what you earned, you earned it by every drop of sweat that came off the end of your nose. On his trapping excursions, Joe Lavalle talked about taking boiled ham, in addition to a good axe, snowshoes, and a rifle. Boiled ham already cooked, so you'd cut off slices and hold it against the fire to warm it up as it would be frozen in the pack sack. We never carried bread. We'd carry what we used to call scone, bannock more likely. His mother would make a batch the size of a frying pan that would be thick and just as solid as a grindstone. As Joe went on to say, you'd have a slice of that and it would stay with you all day. You could put five or six of them in our pack sack and you were good for a whole week. You could fall on them. You'd never hurt them. Clothing also had to be durable and warm, and every effort had to be made to make, keep it dry. As Emmett Chartrand shared with Roderick Mackay in an interview, if you got wet, you could freeze, you could die. More than once, I stripped down to my bare hide and crossed a creek or river with my clothes, my gun, and my pack lashed to a pole that I held high over my head. And as Joe Lavalle described, what we wore was just a common heavy windbreaker and wool underwear that then was at least a quarter inch thick. When you sweated while wearing it, the wool would absorb that sweat from you. Footwear was a moose skin moccasin, along with three pairs of wool socks. One of Joe's worst experiences, though, happened one night when he froze right to a maple tree. I was wearing a horsehide windbreaker, 
and I tracked a fisher all day, and I sweated, I guess, wet right through my pack sack. When I came to make camp at night, no blanket or nothing, just a little lunch with me, I managed to get a fire on in January, and I guess it was 20 below zero Fahrenheit. I made a cup of tea, and I sat up against the maple tree. I fell asleep sitting against this maple, and I couldn't get away from the tree when I woke up, so I had to unbuckle it here and get out of that jacket just like that, and the windbreaker was frozen solid to the tree. I pretty near froze to death before I got a fire going again. Took me half an hour or more to get that windbreaker thawed out from that tree. That was the worst night I ever put in. Poachers often used frozen waterways as it was more difficult for tracks to be detected and you could travel faster. But in the spring and fall, there was the danger of falling through the ice. As one poacher shared, if you could hang onto your axe when you went in, you could always drive your axe into the ice to pull yourself out. Your clothes would start to freeze right away, so you had to head for a place where you could find some wood and start a fire right away. According to those who knew, it was harder to detect poachers who walked into their trapping areas rather than canoed. According to Ralph Bice, poachers used to travel at night, and they had little trails of their own, often along deer trails where human tracks would easily be obliterated by hoof prints. The men stayed in heavily wooded areas as much as possible, where they would be less visible to watchful rangers. Emmett Chartrand noted that there was one 35-mile-long deer runway that used to start above Denison's farm at the head of Aylan Lake, and you'd end up between Opiongo and Dixon up towards Wright and Bonfield Lakes. In an interview with Roderick Mackay in 1975, Clarence Bogius told of a fellow who made himself some moose feet like stilts. Even in the winter when it was snowing, there'd be a few moose up along the park line. He'd just put these on and walk maybe three-quarters of a mile before he got to the park line. He'd walk maybe a mile into the park, take them off, and hang them up in a tree, and away he'd go. Another way trappers attempted to avoid detection was by using the railway. As Harold Haynes said, some poachers used to have bicycles with this little flange on one side. They would pedal up the railway track, and the tire would go on the rail, but the flange kept it straight. Whenever they wanted to get off, they'd hide the bicycle in the bush. Another time, he said he came across a canoe that was hidden in the bush. He knew it was a poacher's because the paddle was black, having been put in the fire and burned slightly so that it wouldn't shine. One technique used by rangers was to climb to the top of a high hill at dusk. From there, they would watch all over into the evening to see if they could see smoke or a reflection from a trapper's fire. Then they would head over in that direction through the night to that fireplace. Most trappers chose not to sleep out in the open. As Joe Lavalli shared, we used to have a kind of lean-to with sides on it. It opened like that, and you'd build a fire in front. There'd be heat in there all night. We'd dig the snow away first, then we'd put it around this green balsam brush on the ground. Then we'd have to go and hunt in a marsh, cut that marsh hay and draw it that way. We'd put it on top of the balsam brush, and then a good Hudson Bay blanket went on top. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, some poachers would set up hideouts in out-of-the-way places. An abandoned alligator used during the logging days on Burnt Island Lake was one such hideout. Another trick was to dig a large hole, set in it a wooden framed insert that was sufficiently strong to hold up a roof of scooped logs, which was then covered with leaves. One poacher claimed he could duck into such an underground shelter, which was heated by a stove made from a five-gallon tin, and hide for days. To set a fire without being detected, Emmett Chartrand said that you'd get some little dry maple or poplar, 
that if kept small wouldn't smoke. You don't burn pine. You'd see pine smoke for miles and you would set a fire only at night. Another means of avoiding detection was to set a small fire under a large tree so that the smoke would go up into the branches. Algonquin Park leaseholders and guides were also not excused from close scrutiny by the rangers. One known poacher in the park was Dan McElroy, originally from Scotia Junction, who was the first trainman for the Grand Trunk Railway at Cache Lake. He'd camped on the lake for years and later took out one of the early leases. Later it was discovered that he allegedly had a side business trapping and smuggling furs. He was told to give up his lease or he'd be arrested. He immediately sold his cabin in 1924 and disappeared from the park. Records in the Algonquin Park archives also reveal a 1928 letter to Department of Lands and Forests Deputy Minister Kane questioning whether Ralph Bice should be denied a guiding license for the following summer because of three of the family who had proven themselves to be quote-unquote lawbreakers. Of course, Bice promised faithfully that all his actions would in future tend towards meeting every law and regulation. Even into the 1950s, park officials were concerned about illegal activities. Laird Sanderson, a leaseholder, recalls the time in 1950 when on Source Lake her parents built a chicken wire cage with logs in front of the cottage to keep her brother Duarte from going in the water. The park rangers visited and questioned her parents closely to verify that they weren't trapping or keeping animals. Poachers had to be caught within the park boundaries and then transported to North Bay to attend court where they would be fined. If unable to pay the fine, they were sent to jails such as those in Pembroke or Burwash to serve their sentences. Over the years, an entire mythology developed through stories of poachers both caught and escaped. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, one ranger, Jim Sawyer, was thoroughly frustrated when, after chasing a poacher in winter for 35 miles, he finally caught up to him but couldn't arrest him because by then he'd crossed the park boundary. Another amusing story, recounted in 1976 and quoted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, had Matt Lavalle, a relative of Joe Lavalle, heading to Ottawa on the train where there was a mix-up with his bag. He accidentally had taken the pack of one of the deputy rangers and vice versa. A little later, they realized their mistake, and in exchanging the bags, the deputy ranger showed Matt he had 22 Martin and 90 Fishers in his bag. Martin then were going for $20 each and Fisher for $85 each. Matt, of course, is amused because this was the deputy ranger. Interactions between rangers and poachers was often a battle of wits. Some of the stories that Stuart Eady's family shared with me included one November when Stuart caught a group who were carrying over $2,000 worth of furs. He was in his motorboat and forced the poachers onto Loon Island and held them there until other rangers came. It was too cold for the poachers to swim, so they were caught red-handed. On another patrol, he found a beaver trap in the center of a pond. He staked out a position at one end of the pond and had his son Eldon do the same at the other. There was no escape, and they caught the poachers red-handed as they were taking a beaver out of the trap. Another time, Stuart and his son Art came across a poacher who had fallen in the water just as he was about to take a beaver out of the trap. They watched silently in the bushes, and when the poacher had taken off his wet pants and boots, moved in and literally caught him with his pants down. Another time, Stuart was working with Jack Gervais, and they gave chase to a fellow who was poaching in the winter with his snowshoes on backwards. This was a common trick, used so that the rangers would think the trapper was going the other way. 
The guy was also wearing a false beard so that he wouldn't be recognized if the rangers did catch up to him. Jack and Stuart followed him a long way before they confronted him. As Art retold, The poachers raised his gun and fired, and Jack scrambled for cover behind a tree but tripped and fell on his snowshoes. Stuart, known to be a good shot, raised his rifle. The poacher yelled out, I didn't shoot him, I didn't shoot him. Stuart, I shot over his head. Stuart held his fire, and the poacher escaped. They never did catch him, but they knew who he was, and the poacher knew that they knew. He'd lay low for a very long time after that. On another patrol, when Stuart was at Lake Louisa, he saw smoke and went to investigate. Later, he realized upon reflection that it was a father and son team. When Stuart arrived, only the father was there. The man fired a shot into the air and loudly shouted to Edie, You got me! giving his son time to escape. In later years, the ranger staff started to cultivate spotters, people who would give them a heads up when certain poachers were heading out. One such story involved Bill Mooney, a ranger based at Joe Lake. As reported by his daughter in her book, Reminiscence of an Algonquin Park Ranger's Daughter, One spring, spotters tipped off rangers that a certain group of poachers were coming up to the park and would come right up Canoe Lake to Joe Lake by canoe. Six rangers, including my father, put a wire fence across the opening at the railway bridge at Joe Lake and awaited the arrival of the poachers. My father was watching the portage between Canoe Lake and Joe Lake when he saw two canoes coming. Fortunately, he did not stay at the portage because three or more canoes were also coming. It might have been a most nasty confrontation. He let the first two canoes get about halfway to the bridge at Joe Lake and then fired two quick shots to let the other rangers know that the poachers were coming. Of course, the poachers sped up and hit the wire fence so forcibly that they knocked it down and just kept on paddling. The other four canoes that were following hid in the bush and as soon as it quieted down, they just went through. Another story recounted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, had park ranger Bud Callahan following trappers across Island Lake in March 1924. After having lunch, we followed their trail, picking up five mink traps set along the shore with only one mink caught. Near the end of the lake, in a small bay, we found another camp. This one had been newly placed here since the snow. It was a tent only, but temporarily vacated, as there were articles of clothing, socks, a shirt, some flour, tea, tobacco, matches, some traps, and a 25 cartridge box. There were also some venison, beaver, marten, and mink carcasses. The tent was made of stripped ticking material. Going further across a beaver pond, we found the trail leading to another trapper's camp in the green bush. This camp was in good condition, being a canvas tent covered over with poles and well brushed with balsam boughs. It had been erected before there was any snow and had been used shortly before we came in. We burned the camp before going and broke up two traps that were in the tent. Other good stories come from Algonquin Park, a place like no other. Game warden Gordon Carswell talked about finding blankets hung up in trees wrapped in canvas. We'd take them down and burn them or cut them up. However, it must have been terrible for the respective poachers after a long, hard day to arrive at the blanket caching spot and find nothing there. As shared by some, being out in that cold for days without shelter or food was feared by trappers almost as much as the fines they would face if caught. In a written and filed report, park ranger Aubrey Dunn gave a description of a near arrest in 1935. I located the poacher's campfire at about 9 p.m. on October 24th. Approaching as close as possible without alarming him, I saw that he was alone. He had a small and very lightweight cotton tent, 
had a large fire going and was cooking bannock, boiling beans, and drying some marten skins. I remained behind a tree fifty-five feet away from his camp until I judged I could approach without him escaping. He had removed his boots and was in his socks. While I was still more than forty feet away from his tent, he saw me by the light of the fire. He immediately jumped up and ran off in his socks without waiting to grab anything from his camp. I ran after him for about a hundred and fifty yards, but he finally escaped. I called to him and told him he had better return to his camp, as he would have a tough trip getting out without his boots and provisions. However, he kept on going. It was now 11 p.m. I returned to his camp and remained till morning. I confiscated his rifle and cartridges, three marten skins, and a knife used for skinning. I left his tent, blankets, cooking utensils, provisions, boots, pipe, matches, toothbrush, and pail, expecting he would return later to get them. I returned to his camp a few days later and saw that he had not returned. I picked up the remaining outfit and brought it out with me. Another amusing story was about the phone system between the ranger shelter huts. Some poachers figured out how to sabotage the bush telephone by cutting the single wire and replacing it with a piece of bootlace or string amongst the tree branches where it'd be hard to see. The resulting delays in trying to find the break would give poachers plenty of time to make a good escape while the ranger struggled to find and fix the break in the line. Another story shared by Ralph Weiss had a pair of poachers coming upon a ranger who wasn't well liked, following him until he camped. They saw that he had a lovely pair of new boots which had gotten wet when he had slipped in the mud. In the middle of the night, they crept up to his camp and stole the boots that were hanging on pegs on each side of the fire, far enough away that they would not burn but would dry out. The poor guy came out the next day wearing an old pair he'd picked up at a nearby lumber camp. Another great story found in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, involved two other park rangers, Jack Burchot and Max Barutsky, who occasionally patrolled together. Barutsky remembered, We changed routes because the poachers get on to where you go if you use the trail too long, and they know which way you travel. If you changed well, we succeeded a couple of times. One spring there were signs of poachers. The snow was all gone, but at this pond we got this track going up to the beaver house. I guess he saw us, and the darn bugger, the only place he could have been, must have made the hole bigger and gotten into the beaver house and hid. I was too heavy, and the darn ice wouldn't carry me, because it melted all day, and he'd been there since twilight. Bershot said, you stay here in case he jumps out. Further back in the heavy snow there was enough snow that you could track. He went clean around that pond and came back and said there was no track out. So we got some wood, built a fire, and we stayed. Come in the morning, that bugger had to come out. It was just frozen enough. But he was a light man, very light. We got his track. He must have passed very close to us. He was darned careful, and probably we were asleep, too. He got out. Another narrow escape involved Claude McFarlane, who was patrolling the Oxtrung River. He came across a poacher who was skinning a beaver at the water's edge with his back to the ranger. When McFarlane put his hand on the trapper's shoulder to apprehend him, the trapper dropped his knife, reached up and grabbed the ranger's arm and tossed him into the ice-cold river. He then grabbed the beaver, threw it into the canoe, and away he went, disappearing into the bush. Another time they caught the same trapper, but the trapper upset the canoe and the trapper's pack sack ta traps and everything went into the bottom of the lake. There was no use trying to catch him as he swam to the shore as the rangers now had no evidence with which to charge him. One of the most famous poacher-catching stories ended up being reported in the Toronto Star in 1943. 
It involved Jack Gervais, who was based out of Brule Lake at the time. The Grove City College Outing Club had apparently been concerned about Jack's welfare in the woods. As quoted in the newspaper, Lonely vigils in sub-zero weather and often physical encounters with rugged individuals whose desperation and determination to avoid arrest, fines, possible imprisonment, and the loss of valuable pelts, balked at no former resistance and violence and considerable hardship and personal danger that Jack encountered in his efforts to track down and apprehend poachers in the park. To help him, the club presented him with a pocket-sized tear-gas gun shaped like a pen. The idea was that when approaching a suspect, Jack could draw this object from his short coat pocket without appearing to produce a weapon. It was ready for use if needed, and needed it was soon after. According to the Toronto Star, Charging two alleged poachers with tear gas bombs, Jack Gervais, Algonquin Park Ranger, last night captured and placed them under arrest, charged with poaching in the park. Several beaver skins were taken from the two men, who were en route to Pembroke. The two were sighted on a trap line by rangers who set a trap for them. As they came along, Gervais and other rangers rushed them. One fired a gun and Gervais promptly hurled a tear gas bomb in front of the other two, who quickly gave up resistance. The men were caught in the area north of McIntosh Lake, which for years had been subject to lightning raids by poachers. Of course, over the years, Jack, who loved to tell stories, would embellish the story and add many colorful details, like the discovery of several beaver traps and his throwing them in the water to make it appear that they had been sprung. Or after three days, lying in wait for trappers to return and the subsequent threat to his life from a drawn gun and brandished axe when Jack and his companions sought to make the arrest. Or his slow maneuvering to gain a position upwind so that he might employ with maximum effect the little tear gas pen concealed in his hand, the anguished pleas for mercy when the tear gas hit the two men with full force. There was even another account that several poachers from the district had been arrested after a pitched battle with guns drawn and the men subdued only after a terrific fight in the dark. Heavy fines were imposed at the time. It's not clear that any of that was all true, but it did make for a great story and supported the stereotypes of poachers at the time. However, an objection was raised about the use of tear gas in such situations, and soon after no more was heard or seen of the little tear gas pen. Some locals struggled with what to do when they discovered that their relatives were part of a poaching activity. One wrote to the park authorities, These local boys, about 20 and 18 years of age, are first cousins. Their father is a brother of my wife and is a permanent resident of Rock Lake. My wife is the owner of the cottage at Rock Lake where she resides during July and August of each year. I do not think that my stepson is the ringleader, but he's always ready to fall in line when someone else proposes a light job and usually carries the rifle. I do not go up every year, and it keeps me busy providing funds for those who do go. But every time I've been up there, I know that deer are being killed, for I'm an eyewitness of its existence. When a deer is killed, it's divided up, and each recipient is more or less guilty of breaking the laws. Leastways, all are a party to the deed. I've remonstrated with my wife and stepson regarding the matter, but without success. Now, I do not wish to trouble you further with this matter. I feel that at least I've done my duty in notifying you. I do also know that one of my neighbors is always in terror for fear his boys should get caught, as we are the ones who would actually suffer, and we would have to pay the fines. As I wrote before, I am not able to stand for that financially. Sometimes the authorities accidentally caught someone that they wished they hadn't. 
One incident that Stuart Eady's son Art shared with me occurred near the Lake of Two Rivers when his father, park ranger Stuart Eady, heard shooting in the bush. He phoned the West Gate and told them to search every car as two pet deer that were the pets of the chief ranger's wife had been shot. They stopped the culprit at the West Gate, only to discover that he was the police chief from Huntsville, the local town about 40 miles away. I hope you've enjoyed this collection of stories about the history of poaching in the park. Luckily, as mentioned in Episode 5, in the late 1940s, a system of registered trap lines was set up around Algonquin Park. From then on, only furs with official government tags could be sold to the fur buyers. This new system pretty well did away with the need to poach in the park. With the protection of the wolf population, the ecosystem balance seems to be working reasonably well, with the biggest problem only being the occasional bear. Today, the only shooting is done with cameras, and the wildlife that many are able to see and the images they capture are truly remarkable. For other stories about the human history of Algonquin Park, check out my website at algonquinparkheritage.com, which includes now a collage of photographs that I've been collecting over the past 20 years.